Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe, the podcast series for beginner web developers and general web enthusiasts. Now, introducing your show hosts Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Keynes, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann, and today we're very lucky to be joined by Juho Vasilanin. I think I got that right. I'm really sorry. Almost, almost. Almost, almost. Sorry, you, you do the honours. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. It's, sorry, yeah. After, I think, probably five fail attempts before recording. I thought I was confident in saying it, but yeah, I'm really sorry. Um, yeah, how are you doing, you How's it going? Yeah, great. I mean, weather is fine. Everything's awesome. fine, so... Brilliant. Yeah, I, know, I heard you I was speaking off. I was just, you know, speaking that you've just been on a nice bike ride. So you're ready and raring to go for a podcast. Yeah. Would, would you mind actually just introducing yourself for the audience? Yeah. So I guess I'm most known about my Survive.js effort. So I mean, there's this site, Survive.js.com, that contains a couple of free books. One of those books is about Webpack and React. Another one is about Webpack. And I, I'm actually in the process of splitting up the first book. So we end up with two, two books, and most of the content is freely available. So I'm kind of, what I'm actually doing is that I have this huge jungle, I mean, huge jungle of front-end or JavaScript, and I'm kind of trying to develop these tools to kind of get through that jungle. So those books are like uh, these jungle knives. Awesome. And, and how did you get into JavaScript then? Like, Have you been a JavaScript developer your whole career, or is it something you got into just recently? No, I've been like, it has been my life for, let's say, 10 years. So I got I, I got into JavaScript pretty early on with jQuery and all that. Do you dabble in any server languages, or is it primarily the front end that you really sp- spend most of your time? Actually, when I started programming, it was like basic and C, and then I went to PHP and Python and all that. What is it about JavaScript then that made you like stay there? I mean, through ten years, obviously that's that's a long time now, and it's changed dramatically. Yeah, I mean, it has been. I mean, only the last five years have, have been like active active JavaScript development. But I, I guess the last few years in particular have kind of shown, shown its power because it's like the language of the web. So it's like everywhere. Yeah, that, that's exactly it, isn't it? And, and uh, I mean, so we, we found out about you and, and really the Survive.js kind of collection of books um, through Sean Townsend. Um, he turned a tweet in to us and said, oh, you should check out these because we were talking about React and stuff on the show and Webpack. And um, yeah, then I picked them up and I started reading. I, I read the, the React one first, React, React Webpack one. And then yeah. you, you, you replied back saying, oh, by the way, there's a Webpack one specifically. And I picked that up and uh, I've been enjoying them both. And, and it'd be, I thought it was really interesting. It'd be really good to get you on the show to discuss in particular um, um, you know, kind of the techno- these technologies because, you know, as you say, like the JavaScript frameworks, JavaScript like ecosystem has just changed dramatically over, the, you know, the course. And, and I feel that your books are very good at just kind of showing abroad over everything because, you know, focusing on one is fine, but, you know, it's really the sum of its parts. How do you deal with the whole kind of system, you know, dealing yeah. with everything? And I feel that, you know, the Survive.js book and, and I mean, interesting enough. So what, what actually drew you then to, to write these books? Was it that yeah, it actually goes way back. I mean, it was like two years ago in October. I, I bumped into Christiana Fonis' blog. He had this post about Webpack. And of course, because I am who I am, so I had to write this comment that you have this and that wrong, so maybe we can fix those, and maybe we should kind of collaborate and write a cookbook. So we ended up, I ended up writing a cookbook about Webpack because there was a huge lack of documentation. And after that, I kind of realized that this actually might become a real book. So I have this old publisher, kind of, I know this publisher guy, so I kind of sent the email that told me kind of try to collaborate on this and we negotiated for four weeks 
they end up, ended up saying no. So they didn't want us to work for them to create a book. But I kind of felt that there was this huge need for material like this, uh, some kind of book that kind of covers it all in, in some way. So that's when I kind of started pushing this effort. Uh, I had this old name, Survive.js, from a couple of years back. And I kind of figured out that I have to do this because if I don't do this now, I won't do this ever. And it kind of, it was like I was pushing this project first, but pretty pretty soon it came, it, there was this demand, there was this huge pull from community. I started getting fan mail and I, I mean, it, it's just great when you kind of get demand instead of having to push alone. So it kind of changed, it changed everything. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's really interesting as you say, like, you know, people really wanted this material. Yeah. Um, and like being the, you know, the word survive JS, um, you know, I, I feel that really is a good title for it because, you know, it can be really daunting at the moment getting into the JavaScript world. Um, because, you know, as you say, like you, you introduced with jQuery and things like that. I mean, obviously before that, you know, that the, the language just being on it, uh, on its own vanilla um, set, but actually, you know, moving into jQuery and now, you know, we've got an influx of all these different things, you know, I mean, we've, we've had the backbones and the ecosystem of changing with underscores and then Angular, and now we've got React and, and then we've got the build systems around that. And um, obviously one of them is Webpack. And yeah. uh, you've just, you mentioned that. And, and a lot of, you know, when I was kind of going through kind of thinking how we could do this show and everything, and a lot of my questions really did rely, uh, you know, revolve around Webpack because um, it's a really interesting tool. And um, your your books really did cover it in great detail, kind of, you know, explaining all of the facets of it and how, how much it is very much a beast, isn't it? You know, of what it can do. Um, yeah. But I thought it'd be really interesting to kind of discuss this because I do think people get maybe a little bit confused with Webpack and kind of what a bundlers are and things like that. So maybe it'd be really good, interesting for the audience to, to you know, maybe your, your definition of what, what exactly is a task runner? Because before we have obviously Webpack and bundlers, we have these things, you know, called task runners, which, you know, the people in JavaScript world will probably most mostly familiar with things such as grunt and gulp and um you know back in obviously the days of like make and things like that with c programs um and, and just wondering yeah what what actually is a task runner then so we have like task runners like make of course that that's like ancient and we have grunt and gulp and of course you can use npm as a task runner but what is bundler i mean it, webpack as a bundler does a lot less than a task runner i mean task runner is something generic you kind of I mean, if you use Grunt or Gulp, you build your own pipeline. You glue these individual plugins together to get what you want. But it's kind of it's a higher level tool. But what what Webpack does, it solves one problem, and that's the bundling. I mean, what what it means is that you have these different assets like uh, images and styling files and JavaScript files, a lot of different kind of files. But the problem is that you cannot use these files in, in your browser straight away. So you have to kind of package them up. So that's what that's where bundling comes in. So what you do is you take all of these files, this huge dependency graph, and then you turn it into something you can serve. So that that's where you get those small bundles you can give to the client. So it, it's it's simplifying or is 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 that process of taking uh, something and turning it turning it into something that browser can understand. Of course, like task runners, they're like high level tools, and you have but of course you can use this together so you have still high level tasks uh, and you have like gulp and then you have webpack doing the bundling and you you use webpack through gulp for instance and you do some other tasks through gulp but it's i mean these tools can work together so they are not either or but it's like i i see them as something that you can use together that's interesting yeah because i think people would get confused thinking you could use a task runner or 
you know maybe a bundler but as you say like you know task runners are just a high level abstraction then over running tasks essentially yes. you know things such as you know maybe bundle i mean i mean it essentially could be packaging up an asset you know thing linting things like that and you can just think of them as running commands and and it's interesting with them kind of comparing them because just wondering with your experience like using yeah even make grunt gulp and just npm scripts like what one do you kind of lean towards now what was your preference well, the, well i see a webpack as a power tool so it, it might not be the tool that you pick first because it's huge and complex it's difficult to learn. So actually, you might be well off by just using Gulp scripts or something. But uh, yeah, but because I know Webpack, I have been kind of doing a lot of work around it. So of course, I pick Webpack myself. But if you are using something else and you are happy with it, there might not be kind of a lot, lot of incentive to move on yet. So it kind of depends. It depends on your problem, absolutely. Yeah. And only, only actually when I was delving into your book and kind of thinking more about these, because I've only ever really had some experience with Grunt because of certain the project we were actually working on at work was just using Webpack. So it kind of moved from Grunt then just to use Webpack solely yeah. and then just with NPM scripts. And um, it's just interesting to kind of what the, the differences between Grunt and Gulp, because I think it's interesting how the configuration, it's very much a configuration approaching uh, Grunt, isn't it? And then there's this code-centric uh, approaching goal and i'm just wondering like kind of how you feel like is there a benefit would you say then to use something like gulp as opposed to grunt or do you feel that these you know like it is essentially you have a task runner you can choose out of you know all these four if you want i mean the the, the npm script one is one of those ones where you get it for free essentially if you use an npm yes you know yes, it, I mean, yeah that's kind of if you use webpack you a lot of people use npm as your task runner uh, because it's it's simple it works but the way i see it like Grant and Gulp, they are powerful by themselves, but I see Gulp as an evolution of Grant, because I think the problem with Grant was that it kind of, when it grew up, and, and you get these huge Grant files that say down, down lines, and it gets difficult to follow. So Gulp is something that's easier, because it's a streaming interface, it's, mm. it's a code. That, and that obviously has the, yeah the pros then of being able to deal with code, because you know these high-level configurations, you just don't know what the magic is going on under the hood. Yeah, you actually have a bit of the same issue with Webpack because it's abstract, so it kind of hides things from you, from you. So it, it can be kind of difficult to figure out why it works the way it does sometimes. Kind of, you get the feeling, don't you, as you say, like that. You know, Webpack has the same problems because it's very much configuration driven as opposed to code centric. And yes. interesting, maybe there will be, a, you know, in time a compa- You know, I mean, it does Browserify because Browserify obviously is a alternative to Webpack. Does that, yeah. does that deal in configuration or is that code-centric? Uh, Browserify is, is closer to Unix. So what you do is you combine these smaller tools and that's perfectly valid approach. I mean, it's easier to get started because when you have something simple, then you glue it together. But I, I think the complexity grows as you glue these small tools together. So it's different trade-off. And actually, speaking of web configuration, we are actually doing something about it. So we have this uh, uh, package known as Webpack Validator. So the goal of this project is to kind of simplify the usage of Webpack so that it actually catches common errors. So it validates your configuration and it catches some common issues. So so it's kind of making the user experience of Webpack a little better. That's awesome. That is incredibly powerful. Yeah. Obviously, we've gone from task runners. So we have these task runners and we can even use NPM and we can, you know, maybe bundle it. Well, I say just, you know, pretty much release our assets, you know, compress them, concat them, do whatever we need to do, do some transformations, you know, for less files or SAS files and then ship it out. And I suppose that's the change between 
doing those kind of things and then realizing actually we've got a sufficiently large pro uh, project now uh we need something like webpack and i suppose what you know how has that happened like what are the drawbacks for doing such a thing as like just minifying concatting all the javascript assets together and adding all the css files together and things and and how has like single page applications really changed our thinking that something like we need to consider just bundling in its own outright thing well i mean uh, if you look at history i mean in a, in, a, in 10 years ago or so it was like enough to just generate everything at the server and give it to the client and forget about it. But a single page application changed it all. So now we have something, let's say, more granular. I can give you like more explicit example of what I mean is that, uh, let's say you have this huge single page application. It has lots of logic and so on. It doesn't make sense to have a huge bundle. Let's say a bundle of megabytes is huge. So Webpack actually allows you to kind of split it up. So you end up with something smaller, let's say 200K, and you load, load dependencies, dependencies as you need them. So let's say you have like graph view, and the graph view is using heavy dependency. So what, what you do is you tell Webpack that this is something that should be loaded later. So it generates the bundle that's loaded on demand. So you can do this kind of optimization. So so your client get, gets to load lesser and you get better better performance out of the box. So, I, I mean, that's kind of one of the selling points of, of Webpack. Uh, and so, yeah, so it's then dealing with the fact, yeah, of like being able to have optimizations, performance, then I guess is a main key one, and, and caching and things like that, being able yeah. to split these up. And and then, you know, so, so with that then, Webpack kind of has, you delve more into Webpack, and then you realize there's these concepts of loaders and plugins. Yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering, how, how do they fit into the tool then? Yeah, I mean, loaders define how to map some specific file uh, to maintain Webpack world. Let's say you have like CSS. So in Webpack terms, you will push it through CSS loader and style loader, for instance. Or, of course, because you don't want to include the CSS, generate CSS in the JavaScript bundle, you will use something like ExtractText plugin. So plugins and loaders kind of work together. So loaders define how to map assets to your application and plugins allow you to do more advanced tasks. And then in your books, obviously you explain like, you know, creating your own plugins and things like that, because I mean, the loaders are obviously the valuable ones for the fact of like being able to kind of, because I suppose where people would get the confusion is that you can essentially think of, well, the, the things that I'm running for my task run is such as say Babel and these preprocessors, such as less preprocessors and SAS preprocessors, they all can be considered loaders within, yep. um, you know, within the Webpack world. So you can essentially kind of take away that you know, that problem within, from the task runner and move it into the Webpack domain. Yeah, yeah, it becomes a loader. So essentially what Webpack actually is, it's a tool that transforms dependency graphs into those bundles. So it's all about graph manipulation. And what actually is a dependency graph? Because in the documentation, there's a lot about that kind of, you know, that's been its key thing is the fact that it treats your project as a de- dependency graph. Um, what, what exactly is a dependency graph and like how does it, how does it use that? Yeah, like the simplest way to think about it is to look at how NPM works. So you have like a JavaScript application that has dependencies on other NPM packages. So that's why you get those dependencies that dependencies that form a graph because dependencies have their dependencies and so on. So that that's kind of the key key understanding. So if you are doing JavaScript, you're most likely using NPM and you have these huge dependency graphs in your application already. 
so, so it's able to use then this dependency graph to then build up uh you know characteristics to be able to work out how to neatly split it and things like that and how it can dedupe and all these funky things yeah so you think about back you describe how to map this use dependency application dependency graph into, into your application so that's what, what it is so it's it's a, it's a tool to, to define this transformation Mm. with that obviously you know it's the modules then around it and you know we've only just got in javascript uh you know this the concept of modules in yeah, you know, it, as a javascript language construct yeah it, does, it took 10, 20 years but i mean i'm really happy we have them but it's course, about time <laughs> yeah but uh, i think the problem is that now that we have modules it's great but we still don't know how to load them from browser so we have to wait another 20 years or 10 or 5 to get a standard loading me- mechanism so I think that's where initiatives like system chairs come in. That's it, yeah, because because obviously, you know, within that time, you know, that that it didn't exactly stand still. Uh, we we got AMD and we got Common JS, uh, yep. and then finally we've got the ES6, you know, um, actual you know JavaScript native implementation. Um, and a Webpack actually deals with all of them. Uh, it's yep. quite it's quite agnostic on that. It doesn't really mind. Yeah, I mean, Webpack doesn't care. I mean, you can use AMD or ES6 or Common JS. Of course, uh, if you are using Webpack one, you have to use Babel. But in Webpack 2, ES6 model formats, format is uh, supported out of, out of the box. With actually Webpack 2 then, like how much development do you, do you, are you keeping quite up to date then with the development there and how it's going on? Yeah, I'm like uh, in a spectator mode. So I kind of like like to see that what's going on, but I don't use it yet because I have so much to do. So, But it's, it's still, I mean, it's definitely something I, I will have to cover in detail when it's the time. Mm, yeah, because it, it seems like it's got some really interesting features. Yeah. Um, and, and so uh, along with that, so you've got the modules, you can import, you know, requiring things, and that builds out your dependency graph. Um, and then you've got this idea of the hot web dev, dev server, yeah. um, which allows you then to essentially you know, run this application, you know, be able to start up a server and be able to, you know, it, it has like the live reload kind of functionality. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's like uh, evolution. I mean, uh, we had library load uh, browser thing before. And of course, those are like good tools, but the hot model replacement, it's kind of the next step. So instead of having to force a full reference, uh, you can do something more clever. So especially in, in when you're using React and React.lore or similar solution, you can re- retain the application state while you're still modifying it and batch, batch the application without forcing a full refresh. This is like powerful concept that you understand when you see it. But it's, it's very useful not to lose application state while you are developing. Especially in the SPAs, because, you know, a full page refresh is just a pretty much a hard reset on the application. Yes. So, yeah, being able to have this where you have this, you know, fine grained. And, and that's the stuff that Dan Abenrob with uh, like Redux has been doing a lot of work on, hasn't he? Where that, I mean, the concept really about Redux was the fact that he could then do something like hot module replacement because he was completely yes. extracting out the state. Yeah, because, I mean, it, that was like the starting point of the design. So it allows you to, re- I mean, if you implement the impl- interface, you can replace uh, reducers using the hot model replacement. So it will just work. And it, I mean, that's, I, I think that kind of led to the pure design of Redux because he had this constraint in mind. Is this a specific thing that Webpack can do, the hot module replacement, or is it available in other bundlers? I have actually seen uh, an implementation for Browserify, so it's it's not something unique, but it's definitely one of those things that kind of sets Webpack apart or what it's known for. And this obviously is only a development thing where, you know, within development you're able to have this idea of it pushing it via sockets. And it, I, I, how does it actually technically work? Do, do you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sock, sock.js, so you have like socket 
WebSockets underneath. So I have a client side uh, set up that's that matches for the server and server lets, lets the client know that hey something changed you can patch this. Uh, speaking of HMR on general level, in, in theory we could use it on actually on production applications, but that's kind of uh, still kind of it's possible, but I don't think nobody uses HMR in that would production. be pretty crazy, yeah. Because yeah. I mean, like, like things like Erlang have the idea of hot modules replacement, essentially, doesn't it? Where you can do hot loading and things, and yeah, this is giving it in JavaScript, really, because you know you can essentially just replace a bit of the system while it's still running, which is a completely yeah. crazy, <laughs> crazy idea. Um, so, so yeah, so you've got this idea of hot module replacement then because you're able then to be able to, you know, start developing these um, apps and, and then you've got the loaders, which then give you the pre-processor such as Babel and things. And, and along with that, obviously you need a good debug, you know, trace and, and that's where source maps comes in and, uh, Webpack does support, I'm right in source maps out of the box. It's able to create these source maps for you both, you know, during development and also when in production. Correct. I mean, that's why we have that, that, dev tool option. So there are like there are lots of ways to configure it, of course, but it gives you something that's useful for development. Uh, it's it's most likely going to be in line. So you have this JavaScript panel that contains the source map, or in production, of course, it's not a good idea to include include your source maps in in the main panel. So it can generate a separate file containing the source map, which you can load when you need it. So with then the source maps and things, you've got the minification and and there's a this concept called dead code elimination. I just yes. wonder if you, you wouldn't mind explaining that. Yeah, I mean, uh, th- this is, I mean, it's, it's, it's easier to understand when it, I mean, in terms of ES6 models, because if you look at the ES6 model definition, what it gives us is uh, is something uh, that, that's possible to analyze in static manner. So we have these uh, model files, you can go through them without executing the code, and you can extract the dependency information. So you can see which parts of which files are used. And what this means is that when you have this information, you can tell that these parts of code, code are, are not used. So that's enough information to tell you tell that you can eliminate these parts of code. So you can get uh, something more compact because you can forget about the code that's not used. So that essentially that, that's what uh, that code elimination is about. It's about figuring out which parts of the code are not used and ditching those. Brilliant. And is that built uh, within Webpack or is that an extra, you know, like kind of an extra plugin that has to be included? I know it's it's something Webpack 2 related. So, I mean, if you are using Webpack 1, I don't think it's it's available for you yet. But I mean, I mean when, it, when we get to the Webpack 2 world, it's going to get easier. Brilliant. Because I know that I've seen a lot of examples where, you know, like you have like environment variables. Um, and actually in your book, there's one, you know, where you use the environment saying, OK, I'm in dev mode and things like that. And you're able actually cause to conditionally wrap, uh, you know, com- uh, you know, things like say, I only want to do certain things in dev. And then obviously do dead when you're doing the dead code elimination stuff. It then removes that because obviously it's not being used within those production paths. Yeah, that's actually really a technique. So what Webpack allows you to do is to replace statements like that. So you have, like you said, production. You set this uh, environment to production, and then you have code that evaluates as false. So you have, like, if if false, and when you have if false, that's uh, dead code. So then a tool like Aquify can pick it up and eliminate, eliminate the dead branch. So this is, like, related technique. It's, like, one way to do elimination. With that, then, you've got, like, CSS support and things like that. And, and one of the interesting ones, actually, the dead style elimination that you mentioned in Purify CSS. So is that kind of a similar thing, then, along, along the route of use within styles? Yeah, I mean, it's it's like, it's a perfect tool. It, I mean, it does some magic. I, I don't know exactly what, but I, I think it, it goes through your 
your files, HTML files, figures out what classes are used, mm. and it takes a peek at your CSS and figures out that, all right, we are using these classes, so we can ditch those because we are not using them. So I believe it can be very powerful with big uh, CSS frameworks like Bootstrap because often you are not using every yeah. piece of Bootstrap. That's it. Yeah, you bring this whole thing over just to use a small part, uh, you know, portion of it. So this allows you then, uh, yeah, within production when you're bundling it up, just to say, yeah, just include what you actually really need, which is really valuable. There's like uh, another way to look at it is that because we know that Bootstrap is very popular, so we might as well use CDI and load it. Mm. So that that will take the pain away because we can just use the locally cast version. That's, because it's so popular. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting, actually, because you do actually mention that in the book as well, where, you know, like things like React and things like that, where, you know, you can have a production-ready version of React because it uses the concepts of, like, if it's in an environment where, you know, it's in production, it won't, you know, do property tests and things like that, or props tests or and things. So it's just interesting where you, you know, how, how do you balance that? Because, you know, obviously you can bring down this big payload of, of well, a bigger payload, you know, bigger-ish payload from Webpack where it's got maybe its own version of React, which, is, you know, has got bits removed and stuff but or you can use a cdn um so i'm just wondering like what what do you do do, do you kind of balance it out between the two yeah, but that's, that's a good question because i mean I, what, what i think is that it is in, in a way it's it's this way so you have to kind of figure out what's best for you but uh, if you look at these big dependencies that you know that are used a lot of course you can kind of use cdn version first and have a local backup so i think that's that's valid approach if you don't mind using a cdn so mm. And is that, is that something Webpack can actually deal with, um, you know, dealing with the fact of it wants the concept to be now to use a CDN? Or is that something that maybe, you know, down the line? I mean, it's something that's kind of beyond Webpack. So maybe it might be possible to develop some tooling uh, that kind of makes it easier to use CDN while you have a local fallback. I, actually, in, in the past, I have worked with CDNs and we did cdnperf.com that kind of digs into the performance of open source cdns so i kind of i know the cdn world and i have a couple of ideas how to kind of bridge cdns with webpack better but but it's it might be in the future but we'll see um and then finally is like image assets and things like that because you know so you know you've got the whole space where you've got your your script i think that's another thing people get where webpack is not just it's for assets it's not just for your source code for you know your javascript source code it's for your css um it can deal with anything really that has a loader so you know fonts and things like that and then obviously one with these images i mean it gets uh, interesting with image assets because and font assets and like things like that because you can have these tiny images let's say 5k or something and the thing with web, web is that uh, you want to avoid too many requests because every request comes with an o- overhead. So there's this balance, balance here. So what Webpack allows to, you to do is to inline small assets. So instead of generating separate file for input file that's too much, too small, uh, what you do instead is that you convert it to, into JavaScript code. So it will be contained within your JavaScript bundle. So that avoids requests. It's just one level of control that you have. And that's the power of Webpack because it's it's essentially allowing you to develop, you know, in the way that you want to develop, but then after the fact, do these optimizations without really affecting what your dev source code is. Yeah. And then, and then with that then, so you did mention, you touched upon the concept of like lazy loading and the concept of like bun- like splitting up bundles. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, essentially when you're in the task runner mode or naive mode, you know, I was explaining, yeah, you just can cat all your files, minify the JavaScript and you're golden. You, you know, you can send it off, ship it off. Um, 
But, you know, having one big, like, megabyte file to, to download just for the fact of I just want to load up the, you know, the landing page of the application. I don't actually, you know, maybe they'll never even bother. Well, maybe, you know, if you say it's a client coming, you know, maybe a user coming in, downloading a gig, a megabyte of data just for them to load up something that they'll probably end up there and actually I don't want to go on now because of how slow it was maybe or something like that. The yeah. entry points. So, you know, this concept of being able to split these up um, and having good defined splitting up points and things like that. And and that's a very hard thing to work out because, you know, it's very application specific. But obviously, I suppose then with the dependency graph and things like that in Webpack, it's very easy for it to work out where things could be split up. And you can then, I know that you can, like using like require insure and things like that, work out where you want split points. Exactly. I mean, that, I mean that's, that's what makes Webpack so special because there's a lot of power related to this. So you can decide your entry points you can design when you load uh, your data, or I mean your dependencies. So this this goes back to the idea of this dependency graph and splitting it up. So you will have a lot of control over how to load it. With, with this, then having this control, like uh, there, there's a couple of concepts, like because uh, one of the ones you mentioned in the book uh, earlier on in the book in the webpack book was the you know the splitting up of vendor and app. And I think that's yes. a really valuable one because with uh, obviously uh, Webpack can handle asset hashing and caching. You have cache busting, so essentially, a, a, like a file has its hash, you know, within the file name, so you can easily remove it from the cache when it's va- or invalidate it when it's valid. Now, um, you know, so having the vendors and app because apps most likely going to change most often, you know, domain logic, but then yep. your vendors may stay the same for quite a lot longer. Yeah, that's that, you know, that's a good cool te- technique because I mean, exactly as you said. At the app, application code is more likely to change than the vendor code. So effectively, this means that uh, after your your client has loaded the file first and he ends up on the side second time, he, he most likely don't have to load everything again because if you set it set it up right, so we have like this file file names contain some kind of hash, and that hash tells the client to load again if it changes. But if it's the same, he will get the same vendor dependency. So, so we can avoid uh, round trips this way. So it's very useful technique to be aware of. Yeah, it's a brilliant idea. And and, and then so with, with the chunking of this then, so actually splitting up these chunks, uh, there's there's three um, specific ones. And I wouldn't mind if it'd be okay if we just go through them. Like, So could you define what an entry chunk actually is? Yeah, entry chunk. I mean, it's like, uh, let's say we have... Uh, like different pages for the application. So that's where you have entry chunk, like for each page. Uh, I mean, that's the way I, way I see it. Or you can even, I mean, what I like to do is to define the specific entry chunk for styling. So I get separate chunk for, for my application code and separate chunk for my styling code. And the point is that because they are separate chunks, they won't affect each other. So mm-hmm. if, because the problem is if you, if you have everything in one and you change your styling, then the has of your, uh, all, uh, yeah. all chunk changes and you get issues and then because obviously then with with then the css stuff because that's inline css isn't it because you get that flash that i, I can't remember what, exactly what the acronym was you use but it's really, you know, the, yeah the fla- flash of unstyled co- that's content it yeah thing. absolutely and, and so so with uh within webpack you have this option of essentially inlining you know using javascript inlining css which is injected in or you can you say using like a plugin extract that css into static yes. assets and that's a great valuable tool because in itself you can think of it like i know you explained it like where you can think of like okay well actually in this case because it's not getting loaded you know why add that into the static asset i can actually just have this if they want to load it eventually have these styles and and all these things get you know you can think of and as you say like you had the splitting up entry points of style and then the app uh, and then like, and then you have this concept of normal chunks so so what actually is a normal chunk 
Yeah, I mean, that, that's, we end up with normal chunks uh, when we use uh, a plugin also known as common, common chunk plugin. Uh, and we can even end, end up uh, with normal chunks we have when we are using record answer. I mean, the way to load uh, uh, chunks or, I mean, uh, panels dynamically. I mean, so it, when you have like uh, entry chunk, then, then we have something that uh, I mean that's loaded through webpack in, in sense that it generates the bootstrapping code and everything. But when you have when we have normal chunk, then webpack generates something simpler that's loaded through something like JSONP. So it's 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 simpler output uh, that's get get that gets loaded dynamically. So it it's like uh, you can get get to normal chunks through entry chunks, but you cannot kind of get normal chunks by default. You always need at least one entry chunk for your application. So normal chunk is like the next step. Awesome, and then and then initial chunks. Yeah, it has something to do with the commerce chunk, chunk again. I mean, the, it's it, it it it. I think it tells Webpack that I mean, when we have uh, initial chunk, it's something that should be kind of loaded immediately. But it's it's like advanced concept, and it's one of these things I'm still kind of learning about because the Webpack itself is used tool. So there's always something new to learn, but uh, but it's it's related to this dynamic loading and commerce chat plugin. But as a user, you, you don't actually have to kind of worry about normal and initial chunks a lot. It's more of a technical detail that's inside. Oh, brilliant. Okay, so you just have to deal with the fact you're going to have entry chunks and you're splitting them out and then you're going to have this concept of normal chunks, which are the JSONP loaded in after the fact. Yeah, I think that's, that's kind of enough understanding. So you, you just set up your ent- entries. And you might set up a commerce chunk or dynamic loading, and it kind of it just happens. One of the powers then of this of splitting these up, you know, it's not only just for cash busting and things like that. It's it's actually just to you know never have to load these things at all because you've got the concept of lazy loading, and that's a really powerful thing. And and you actually highlight an example in the webpack book of like Luna using that and having a lazy index. I was wondering maybe go go through it and kind of how it works. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's this yeah learner case. So, the, so the point point of that example is that we have like, uh, let's say I have a st- static site, and of course the problem is that it will be kind of fun to search over the content, but it's it's not fun to provide the search index when you hit the static site. So instead, what we can do is to have like a search input, and when the user starts typing, we can load the search index. So instead of having the data available first, we load it on demand. And that's where lazy loading comes in. So you start typing, we load the search index and search against it locally and everything works. And this kind of gives us a lot better performance because we don't have to, we can load the dependencies if we need them. See, that is such a powerful thing, isn't it? And, and, and Webpack provides that out of the box, essentially, that allows you to define these things. And I'm yeah. just wondering, like, Browserify, because that is the kind of, you know, alternative to Webpack. Does it, how much does Browserify provide for you? Or do you have to add a lot more, you know, extra? Because you can kind of consider, you know, Webpack, the kitchen sink approach, and then Browserify maybe, you know, the add-on after-the-fact approach. Yeah, that's actually... I don't have a clear answer because I don't use Browserify enough. So I had this like uh, I used it like a month or two, and then I moved to something else. But I mean, it might be possible you can actually achieve this with Browserify. It wouldn't kind of surprise me at all. And in your day-to-day job, then, um, do you typically use all of these kind of assets, facets of Webpack, or is there anything extra that you add on? You know, within Webpack. Yeah, actually, when I started writing the first book. Uh, I ran into a problem and I mean when you're like trying to explain something you kind of realize what's hard to explain and Webpack was one of those things 
So what actually happened is that I ended up ended up uh, writing a tool to make it easier to explain. Uh, so I have this webpack merge webpack merge tool, and it's it's simple in in sense that it's a custom uh, version of merge function that works beautifully with webpack. Because when you're constructing with constructing webpack configuration, what often you want to do it so that you append new elements to your arrays and you join your objects. So it, it's, it is different than standard merge behavior. So that's why I needed this custom tool. But the thing is, now that I have the tool, I can, I can split up my configuration. And in the newest book, I have gone so far that I have my configuration in these small functions. And what this means is that I could write NPM packages that contain these functions describing specific parts of configuration. And this means that uh, if I have boilerplate projects, I can actually depend on these NPM packages or NPM packages that contains most of the configuration. And I can kind of decrease the maintenance cost of my configuration because I have kind of these simple rules or simple uh, kind of a simple way to kind of share common configuration without having to duplicate it per uh, project. It's like that composition, isn't it? Being able to compose this configuration out of just you know these small functions that you have and then you say like you can export them out into npm packages and you can bring them in it's like oh how do i want to handle my image assets and things like that oh i've got you know this idea of just a simple merge that i can do and i can provide in you know it's a simple function that just returns you know the code it needs yeah it takes a lot of pain away because i think especially if you look at react we have a lot of boilerplate i mean if you search npm you will find about three thousand boilerplate (laughs) setting and that's I think the only solution to boilerplate is to just to have it less, have less of boilerplate. So, do, do you feel that's a, that maybe a kind of a negative to Webpack is that firstly it's quite hard to explain what the problem it's trying to solve, but once you know what problem it's solving, this you know the concept of bundling and how hard that is, and and you have to really think of it a different way of you know that you're at it's all assets that you're trying to deliver you know down the pipeline to the user. But do you feel it's maybe like the configuration is maybe its limitation of how hard, how much you know how complex these files can get. Yeah, it's the hard part. So that's what I'm essentially solving. So I mean, it's there. You can see a lot of fragmentation in in terms of configuration styles. Mm. So some people like to like maintain one file, and some people split it up. Where I mean, you end up with multiple files, and then there are like people like me that kind of like to split it up even further. So we have these kind of different schools. So there's like because it's always it's just JavaScript code. There's like like no one right way to configure it. So, I mean, that's kind of pro and con. It, you know, the, the official documentation is, there's a lot of official documentation. Like, it's, it is very well explained, but, like, obviously, books like yours are helping so well much because maybe it isn't as known as, you know, as it, as it could be. Um, is there any other resources that you could recommend to people other than your book, like, kind of, and the official documentation that has, have helped you? Or is it really just kind of experimenting as much as possible? Uh, well, I mean... When it comes to something like boilerplates, it's it's good to kind of look and go go through existing boilerplates. But the problem is, is if you pick up pick up an established boilerplate, uh, you might end up uh, kind of having parts of the code that you don't understand. So that's like the worst case. Mm. So you have something that you don't understand, and you have to rewrite the boilerplate. So what I believe is that we actually need more boilerplates. That's kind of products, but I believe that uh, you need your own pipeline that kind of contains your own knowledge, that kind of codifies your own understanding of what's going on. Because when you have that, you have something you understand, and that's something you can build on top of. Yeah, uh, and then so with with Webpack, um, 
kind of the, the future of it obviously with webpack 2 and things like that and you said that you know you're kind of looking in and seeing what's going on and and it would do you, is it right maybe to explain like kind of what is going on like what is the progress in webpack 2 is it, is it completely different to webpack 1 or is it just a, is it an advancement in in the in the key areas uh, i see it as a incremental improvement so we get these certain new features and perhaps some of older harder bits might go away so it's it's not something that's going to kind of chase chase everything but it's more of an incremental improvement can, can you see any configuration stuff actually within the core changing or is it going to be like using still something like your tool to help aid there is something that that's going to make it easier to configure based on environment because now it's uh, now it's a little hard to kind of because if you use npm uh, as task runner then you have to do these little tricks to kind of figure out which npm task you're running that's actually what i do in my book but i think that's that's something that's going to be easier in the future so because webpack provides a better way of figuring out what you're actually doing outside of webpack you know with webpack 2 there's a, there's actually a really interesting kind of nerdly geeky feature that's been kind of explored because obviously because it's changing so much under the, the javascript ecosystem you know new things new concepts come in and uh, and there's one called i think it's tree shaking am i right in thinking tree yeah i mean we kind of touch that so because i mean that's what es6 enables because es6 gives us uh the static analysis so we can the dead code elimination yes dead code elimination yeah we haven't got the dead clone elimination in that way, the tree shaking. We actually just have it in the way that it can deal with statements, essentially, like if false. Because I suppose Babel, because a lot of the stuff actually you mentioned in the book, you know, you can do some of these things within Babel and there's plugins for Babel. Yeah, so yeah, we can do statement elimination at the moment. But actually, there are like uh, multiple kind of ways to look at it. I mean, we have tools like Aglify and Aglify can actually, it, it can do certain certain things for you. It can, let's say you have like, you use console log for your code logging. So you build this console log based system to give more information during development. So you can use Babel or Aglify so that it eliminates each one of those console log statements for your from your production version because you don't want those to leak through. And it can still be useful to have that information during development. Uh, what would you recommend for uh, people, you know, for people who want to look into these tools? Um, you know, kind of, is there a point within your system that you then require webpack like if you're dealing with you know a big spa or do you feel that it's a good approach for maybe the smaller projects to the bigger ones like is there kind of a, pl- a place in between where you feel that it, it really does serve you know get pros well i have been i have seen uh, quite a few people to move from you have this older system like requires js i mean that was the system that introduced amd so i have seen movements from required js to webpack so they kind of figure out how to their code to that so i think that's like that's like one way you have legacy project and then you gotta figure out how to port this to something more modern because webpack might give you certain benefits over older approaches but yeah i mean one way of course is to kind of try it out in a fresh new project so you get kind of because it's it's a huge tool there's a lot lots to learn so it can be a big leap to make if you have like something established and you try to port that to webpack so it could be a little little bit painful if you don't know exactly what you're doing so instead uh, what i might do first is to do this trial try it in small scale to see how it works out learn the concepts and then try something bigger 
Brilliant. And and actually at the beginning, you, you kind of explained, you know, that, that ES6 solved the module problem, but actually the requiring an import in these modules is still unresolved. And it may take another, sadly, yeah. another 20 years for us to get that. Um, yeah. One of those things was System.js, actually, that you mentioned yeah. was, and I was wondering, what actually is System.js? Because it was only in your book where I started reading about it that really kind of, you know, thought, wow, this sounds really interesting. Yeah, as far as I understand, it's, it's standard. It's, I mean, it's, it's a proposal of how to do it. So we have have tools like JSPM that really impress it. And actually in Webpack 2, we get system import support. So we kind of standardize on this, something that's common. So I think that's just a very good thing. So we get uh, system.import.10. I mean, it's promise-based API. That's quite nice to use. And and what is that then? So that allows you then to say, oh, please import React, and it will have a cached version of that dependency in the system already, like on the cache, and then so that can be shared between multiple, you know, any application that requires that dependency at that version. Yeah, I, I don't know the exact the technical details, but I see it more like uh, evolution over recover answer. So that learner example would be possible to write in terms of system import. Sounds like a lot of work then is going into that as well. It, the, the JavaScript space just keeps getting more and more interesting. And obviously because it's coming more and more technical because, you know, with these SPAs, they're becoming bigger and you need to deal with these tools and you need to have this, you know, kind of insight. We actually have a lot of going on in the space. So we have ES6-specific tools like Rollup. I mean, Rollup, uh, it does actually trace hacking and it's it's great if you're authoring in, in uh, ES6. So it does. It solves smaller problems than Webpack, but it's it can be still highly useful if you're if you're on the ES6 fault already. Uh, I mean, I think JSPM is one of those that you should be at least aware of. So it's it's kind of uh, let's say maybe it's a little rough, but I think it's developing. And uh, I mean, if we have learned something from the history, is that you get new tool every year. <laughs> exactly. So. Yeah, the concept, and it may have like one good concept, but eventually they all merge into. And, and do, do you see Webpack being around for a long time? Or do you feel that it's the start? Yeah, I mean, they're like I can see some challenges, but let's say we get through those challenges, like I expect it will kind of remain for quite a while. I mean, just, just to expand, I mean, we have this problem of scale. Because we have like a project that's managed mostly by one person. Uh, the project is huge popular. So what we need to do is to kind of figure out how to scale the development model so we can actually keep the project more sustainable. So if we can solve this sustainability problem, uh, we can actually make it last for quite a while. Because mm, I suppose you do have like the loaders and the plugins which can be maintained by different people. But yeah, the main core is still is only one person handling that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a little bit problematic, but I hope that we will find some certain ways to kind of work around it or kind of expand the developer base. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Jong, for coming on. It's been really interesting, uh, you know, discussing Webpack and all that. And it'd be great to have you on again, like maybe to talk about React in, in yeah. particular, you know, kind of going into your book more, you know, in that side. Is there anything actually you want to mention or plug before, you know, at the end of the show? Like, have you got any kind of, you know, things coming up? I know that you're saying, you know, the book writing and things like that. Yeah, I mean, thanks for inviting me, of course. I mean, this is like my first podcast, so it's like completely new experience. And I hope you got something out of the episode. But uh, yeah, I'm, what I'm actually doing right now, I'm I'm splitting, splitting up the first book because it's like Hydra. It has like two heads. So what I want is that we have like one really good book about React and one really good book about Webpack. And once I have done that, I hope to kind of expand. But I mean, most of the material is available for, for free. You can check it out at the survivejs.com site. 
And you, if you check out the blog, you will find a lot of interviews of tool authors. So that's like one way to do it is that you kind of check out what different people think about the topic and then you kind of make up your own mind. But I guess that's about it. Brilliant. Well, you, I say it's your first podcast, but you sound great, man. And the audio sounds awesome. Because <laughs> yeah, I know we're talking about that. Yeah. So, but I would say it'd be great to have you on again to talk about React in more depth and yeah, any, any other future endeavors you're doing with the JavaScript stuff. Because it, as I say, it's an it's a involving space. You know, every year we get new tools. And, and at the moment, obviously, the, the activity is so great. But it's good to have, you know, kind of an, a grounded approach on like what Webpack is and what kind of this bundling is. Because really, this kind of joins in a lot of the stuff, you know, where you have the idea of, your, you know, your JavaScript source your css you know your image assets and stuff and really handling the fact that at the end of the day it's just an asset that we're trying to transfer over to the client and how yep. we deal with that yeah brilliant well audio it's been another great episode and uh, yeah we'll speak to you again next week goodbye yeah bye you've been listening to three devs and a maybe you can contact us at contact at three devs and a maybe dot com or follow us on Twitter at the number three, Devs and a Maybe.